We're turning in our Bibles now to our Old Testament reading, Psalm 45. Which is quoted then in our New Testament reading, one of the Psalms that's quoted there in Hebrews 1. If you don't have a Bible, please follow along in the one that's provided for you on page 471. Psalm 45. To the choir master, according to Lilies, a masculine of the sons of Korah, a love song. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir. Hear, O daughter, and consider and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your lord, bow to him. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the richest of the people. All glorious is the princess in her chamber with robes interwoven with gold. In many colored robes she is led to the king with her virgin companions following behind her. With joy and gladness they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. In place of your fathers shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. And I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore nations will praise you forever and ever. Turning now to Hebrews chapter 1. If you haven't been with us this Advent season, uh, we've been working our way through chapter 1 of this epistle, uh, considering what the Father has to say about the Son. Uh, seven quotes from the Old Testament where the author of Hebrews says, if you want to know what God thinks about his son, you turn here. And so Psalm 45 is one of those. Now we hear it in the context of Hebrews 1, beginning in verses, uh, verse 7, and we'll jump around, just follow along, starting in verse 7. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels, winds, and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Verse 13. To which of the angels has he ever said, 
Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our Lord lasts forever. These verses assert something extremely important about Christ. And that is that he is king. It's important for us to be reminded of that because apart from those uh, scriptural reminders of the kingship of, uh, kingship of Christ, we're prone to think that we're in charge. Um, that's the default. That's the bent of our hearts. We think we are sitting on the throne of our lives. Uh, Thomas Nagel, he's a philosopher, a professor at NYU, and he spoke very candidly um, about this human, the impulse of the human heart. He's an unbeliever, as we'll become evident in this quote. This is what he says. He says, I want atheism to be true. And I'm made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally that I hope my belief is correct. It is that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. My guess, though, is that this cosmic authority problem is not rare. And I agree with Professor Nagel on that. It is not rare uh, having an issue with the authority of God. And so we're going to seek to correct that today, looking at Psalm 45 and Hebrews 1. First, notice with me that both of these texts assert simply that Christ rules. We don't, by nature, want him to rule. Thomas Nagel says, I don't want God to have cosmic authority. But these texts simply, simply assert that he rules, that he reigns. That's the first thing this morning. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. That's what God says of the Son. The Father states unequivocally that he's established the cosmic throne of the universe to be occupied by his Son forever and ever and ever. And that that line we saw is pulled directly from Psalm 45. And if we place ourselves back in the context of that original psalm, we can better appreciate just how radical a claim like this really is. Psalm 45, you heard in the inscription, it's a love song. More, more specifically, it's a, it's a wedding song. It is um, a song written about the love between a king and his betrothed, his bride. The author pours forth in, in beautiful images uh, these poetic lines that extol the wonders of the king and the beauty of his uh, bride. But in in the poem about a king, king of Israel, in verse 6 of Psalm 45, in verse 6 of Psalm 45, and if we're still open uh, to Hebrews, uh, we're looking at then verse 9, verse 8, excuse me, but it's verse 6 in Psalm 45. In this song about the king of Israel, he starts talking about God's throne all of a sudden. Now, that makes sense because the kingship in Israel was always 
closely connected with God's ultimate kingship, God's ultimate authority, God's cosmic kingship. So your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Almost like, let's not forget, even though we're talking about the king here, it's God's throne that's forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of righteousness. You've loved righteousness and hated wickedness. But here's where it gets confusing. It's the next verse. Verse 7 of Psalm 45 or verse 9 of Hebrews 1. This is where it gets puzzling when it says, Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness. Do you see the confusion here? He's speaking of God in verse 6. Your throne, O God, is forever. But then in the next verse he says, Therefore God has anointed you. Who? Who is the you there? It's God. Therefore, God has, has anointed God with the oil of gladness beyond his companions. Do you see how this is bizarre, to say the least? What does this mean? Speaking about God's throne, but then saying as though it is actually the king who, of Israel who is God and who is on his throne. Commentators have tried to explain away that apparent contradiction or confusion by reinterpreting verse um, 6 of Psalm 45, this line, your throne, O God, is forever. Uh, They say rather than reading like that, it should be read, God's throne is forever. Let's not make this a direct address to God. Everything gets a lot less complicated if verse 6 is not a direct address to God. So we could say, God's throne is forever, or your throne is like God's throne, but we don't want it to be speaking directly to God because that would then mean that the the you of the following verse has anointed you as God, and we're talking God to God again. Still confusing. It's inconceivable that God could speak to God unless God is a tripersonal God. Oh, maybe there's the answer. Unless the God of the Old Testament is actually Father, Son, and Spirit. And that's exactly what Hebrews, how Hebrews would have us read it. That's why to introduce this quote from Psalm 45, the author says, But of the Son, he says. Who's the he? The Father. But of the Son, the Father says. But of the Son who is God, the Father who is God says. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. You've loved righteousness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you. So we read it like this. Your throne, O Son, who is God, is forever. Therefore, God, the Father, your God, has anointed you, O God, the Son. This is about Jesus. God is indeed talking to God. God the Father talking to the Son, saying he will establish his throne forever and that he will anoint him with gladness and, and, and elevate him above all others. We need to allow scripture to interpret scripture. That is a fundamental principle in approaching our Bibles. And since the Bible is inspired by the Holy Spirit, the way Hebrews tells us to read Psalm 45 is the way you read Psalm 45. And Hebrews is telling us this is God speaking to God, the Father speaking to the Son. In the words of one pastor, These words of these two verses together are incomprehensible unless they're understood to refer to the incarnation. Only he can be called God, that is Jesus. Only he can be called God and at the same time have the Father as his God. And so isn't this amazing what what this teaches us about 
the divine inspiration of the Bible. What, what human mind, what devout Jew could have conceived of such a thing? The psalmist is carried above himself as it were, and affirms a glorious, mind-blowing mystery that the king of Israel, or the king that Israel needed, the Messiah, had to be God, and would be God, come in the flesh. Of course, um, when he does, there's not a whole lot about the Messiah, there's not a whole lot about the incarnation, God in the flesh, that seems that regal, that seems that royal, or grand, or kingly, and yet we are still giving clues that this one born in Bethlehem is indeed the son of whom it is said your throne is forever. What clues are we given? Well, consider his visitors. Shepherds come. Shepherd is an Old Testament um, metaphor for king. Uh, shepherds or kings are often called the shepherds of Israel. Beyond the shepherds coming to Jesus, there's the magi, these wise men, these eastern rulers Do you remember what they call him? Do you remember what happens as they enter Jerusalem and they go to Herod? Do you remember what they asked? They said, we're seeking the one who is called the king of the Jews. Now, how do you think Herod reacted to that? There they are in his palace before his throne. And they said, where's the king? He's like, are you kidding me? Of course, that's what leads to this evil desire in his heart to murder the baby boys in the land. But the fact that they come and say, where's the king of the Jews? That is proof that Jesus is the one spoken of in Psalm 45, the one whose throne is forever, the one whose throne is absolute. So if the first thing that our text establishes is that he rules, that he reigns, the second is how he reigns. So consider with me how he reigns. First, he reigns forever. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Could this be said of any other king? We know some dynasties throughout human history that have endured over a thousand years. But here, this king, Christ, not even his his dynasty, but he himself sits on the throne forever and ever. And he will never leave it. Take heart, dear Christian. He'll never abdicate his throne. Edward VIII has gone down in English history notoriously for abdicating the throne after less than a year. Um, as king of the United Kingdom and the dominions of the British Empire. And what was the reason? If you know the story, it was because of love, right? He fell in love with uh, Wallace Simpson, an American, and more scandalously, a, a divorcee. And that caused a constitutional crisis for the monarchy because um, the king, who is not just the king, but he is also the, the ruler and defender of the faith. He's the head of the Church of England. He could not marry a divorced woman, And so what does he do? Well, he abdicates the throne. His love drew him away from his responsibility to rule and to protect and to serve the nation. He could not be Simpson's lover and her ruler. That's not so for Jesus. He reigns forever, and he does so precisely for the sake of his love. For the sake of his bride, for the sake of you and me, the church. Psalm 45 is a love song, a a song about how the love of the king for his betrothed actually enhances and heightens his responsibility as king. He comes to her as the king who loves her 
by ruling her. And when we turn to the New Testament, we're told Jesus does the same thing for us. Consider Ephesians 1, 22 and 23, that God put all things under his feet and he gave him as head over everything for the sake of the church. He rules everything for the sake of the church, which is his body. That means Jesus won't be drawn away from his kingship by some love, to follow after some love. You are his love. You are his love, and he loves you by being your king. He loves you by ruling you. And that rule is as lasting as his love. Just as his love will never fail, his kingship will never fail. His throne remains forever because his heart is steadfastly set upon you. John Calvin says this, we learn that as he is the head of the church, the author and the protector of our welfare, he reigns not merely for a time, but he possesses an endless sovereignty. And from this, we derive our greatest confidence, both in life and in death. And so the kingship of Christ can never be separated from his love for his people. That's why we see, secondly, he doesn't just rule forever. He rules well. He rules well. He reigns well. It says the scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of righteousness. You've loved righteousness and you hate wickedness. Could we ask for a better ruler than this who wants to promote righteousness and see an end to evil? One who restrains wickedness? One who actively pursues and, and promotes justice? Implementing righteousness? In fact, here's the amazing, this, this is the amazing wonder of the gospel. So determined is this king to see righteousness in his people that he would come from heaven to earth, leaving that exalted throne and making it so that he who knew no sin became sin for us so that in him we could become the righteousness of God. That's how much he loves righteousness. He wants to see it in you. And what will it take for that to happen? He had to take on your sin And he's willing to do it. Why? Because he reigns well. Because he loves so deeply. Now understand that in leaving heaven to do this, he didn't leave his kingship. He didn't lay aside being king. So rather than saying he he left his throne, it's perhaps more accurate to say he exchanged his throne. Martin Luther does that in that great Christmas carol, All praise to you, eternal Lord. Do you know that one? All praise to you, eternal Lord, clothed in our human flesh and blood, a manger choosing for your throne, while worlds on worlds are yours alone. A manger choosing. See, it's not so much about what he loses, but about what he chooses. He doesn't lose his kingship. He doesn't lose the world. He's still Lord. He, He still owns all. Christmas, the incarnation, is not about what Christ loses, even though Philippians 2 makes us think that, right? He emptied himself, but we should never, ever for a moment think he gave up the throne. He abdicated his kingship. No, it's not about what he loses. It's about what he chooses, and he chooses obscurity, poverty. He chooses a manger, but he loses nothing of his royal right. That night, that first night in Bethlehem, that first Christmas... He is still reigning, yet he chose to do so from a bed of straw. And that sort of upside-down kingship marked his entire life, not just his birth, but his death. 
You remember the, the Magi, they're looking for the one born king of the Jews. Well, that's precisely the charge that got him killed. When he's acknowledged finally as the king of the Jews, it's in derision, not in praise. And he's lifted up, not on a throne, but on a cross. And he's given a crown, not of gold, but of thorns. And why? Why? Psalm 45 tells us, Hebrews 1 tells us, because the scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. Because you love righteousness and you hate wickedness. He hated it so much that he would die to end it. Hating evil so much that he would die to put an end to it. What a king who rules forever and who rules well. Well, having seen that he rules and having seen how he rules, we can conclude this morning by considering whom he rules. And I googled it. It is whom, not who he rules. So don't worry. You can write that down in your notes. It's correct. Whom he rules. Again, we remember that the overriding concern in Hebrews 1 is about these angels. If you weren't here before, let me just remind you that the people that are receiving this letter are really obsessed with angels, not the ones that, you know, you, you um, carve out, chisel out with a nice little wood and are hanging on, are standing on your mantelpieces, some of you, not those angels, but the ones in the heavenly places. They thought they were awesome. So awesome, in fact, that they were drawn to give them worship that belonged only to Christ. Well... So in this chapter, he's asserting the supremacy of Christ. And now he does that in the section we've read today by saying, you know how you can tell Christ is greater than the angels? Because he rules them, because he's their king. Quoting from Psalm 104 and verse 7, the author shows that the Old Testament indicates that angels were always meant to be ministers. That was the word servants. They, they serve at the pleasure of Jesus, not the other way around. And we remember Thomas Nagel said he's concerned about cosmic authority. This is cosmic authority. It's not just that Jesus rules the pathetic creatures of the dust. He rules those holy, angelic hosts. Talk about cosmic authority. But if he rules over angels, does he not then have rule over you? Of course he does. The question is not so much does he rule over you. The question is do you let him? Do you live life in submission to him? Have you bowed before him? And if even angels serve God, then shouldn't we? Now look at verse 14 at the end of Hebrews 1. Here the author fleshes out more clearly, though, the way in which the angels serve the king of kings. Verse 14, are they not all ministering spirits? sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. The angels do Jesus' bidding. What's his bidding? To help us. To keep us. The angels serve at the pleasure of Christ, and his pleasure is that you would be kept in your salvation. We may never know when we've received angelic help to keep us from danger to thwart attempts of the evil one, de devils and demons, to tempt us into sin. But we do know, this tells us, that our king sends them to us for this purpose. That's part of the way in which Christ restrains and conquers all his and our enemies. That's the Westminster Shorter Catechism for you. And who would not want such a king as this? A king who loves his people so much that he would exchange a throne for a manger. Exchange a throne for a cradle. 
and then that cradle for a cross in order to save them. And, and then now in the heavenly places, back on that throne that is rightfully his, what is he doing? He is ordering all things for the welfare of his people, sending out his angelic host to do his bidding. And his bidding is that you would be saved, that you would be kept in your salvation. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? This is what he does from his throne. He exchanged that throne to save you. And now from his throne, he ensures that you stay saved. What a king. And so the question is today, does he rule you? If you feel lost, if you feel lonely, if you feel like you are searching for real and meaningful and unfailing love, I want you to know you find it not just in Christ, but in the kingship of Christ specifically. And that's not just a call to unbelievers. That's a call to Christians too. If there's a single aspect of our life that we've not brought under submission to the reign of Jesus, we need to repent. Psalm 45 speaks to the bride of the king. So just because you're his bride doesn't mean you don't bow to him. Psalm 45 says, since he is your Lord, bow to him. If you don't bow to Christ as king, the maker of the universe, the cosmic ruler, the one to whom angels bow, what an arrogant, grandiose assessment that you must have of yourself. Let's just be honest. The disciples trembled in fear at Jesus when he calmed the waves because they saw that he had power that even the wind and the seas could not resist. Do you think you could resist that power? Is that your self-assessment? You don't need to bow to Jesus. If you don't think you need to bow to Jesus, that's because you think you're greater than him. In the early 11th century, uh, there was reigning over England, a Danish king. His name was Canute. And he was getting tired of the sycophantic way in which his um, attendants were always uh, flattering him with extravagant praises and even ascribing to him superhuman abilities. And he got tired of it. And so one day he ordered that he be carried on his throne to the seashore, placed there on the beach, right in front of the breakers. And at, at the rising tide, sitting on his throne, this is what he said, to the waves. You are subject to me as the land on which I'm sitting is mine and no one has ever resisted my lordship without impunity. I command you therefore not to rise to my land and not to presume to wet the clothing or limbs of your master. Well, but the sea came up as usual and disrespectfully drenched the king's feet and his shins. And so, standing up, having made his point, the king looked to all of his attendants, his servants, the people of his palace who, who were crestfallen. He looked to them and he says, Let all the world know that the power of kings is empty and worthless, and there is no king worthy of the name, save him by whose will heaven, earth, and the sea obey eternal laws. And one historian tells us that just to drive the point home from that day forward, he never wore his crown, but in fact, walking back to his castle, took it off and hung it on a statue of the crucified Christ. May we all cast our crowns before his feet even today. Our Father, we thank you for the gospel which tells us 
that you would, in, your, in the person of your son, choose a manger for your throne, even while you own worlds on worlds. Uh, we would not resist your kingship. We know it is only in bowing to you that we find fulfillment, that we find love, that we find our place in the world. And so we do ask that you would reign in us forever, that you would bring your gracious kingdom and that by your all-sufficient merit you would raise us to your glorious throne, the throne that is forever. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.